0: of God's Word on Wednesday night in, um, in the latter half of Romans chapter 8. Um, we've been talking about the Kingdom of God this summer and we'll continue to do that tonight. And there's much that is said about the Kingdom of God in all of Scripture, but much that is said in the ministry of Christ about the Kingdom of God. And a lot is said around grace about the Kingdom of God. Dr. Young often on Sundays in his prayer mentions uh, in praying uh, for the advance of the Kingdom of God and our giving in laboring and longing for the advance of the kingdom of God. Certainly was a frequent topic of the ministry of Christ. He came preaching a message of repentance because the king was present and therefore the kingdom of God was near. But Jesus often uses uh, subtle, seemingly insignificant images when he speaks about the kingdom of God. For example, he describes us as his followers as being like sheep among wolves. He talks about wheat growing in a field in which there are also weeds or thorns present. He talks about salt being sprinkled on meat so that it acts as a purifying and preserving agent. He talks about, as we indicated last week in in the Gospel of Luke in chapter uh, 13, about the kingdom of God being like the tiniest of seeds in the farmer's inventory. It's like mustard seed planted in soil, but it grows and becomes a tree. He talked about leaven uh, in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel being worked into a barrel of meal and it eventually transforms the barrel of meal. We looked at those two images of the kingdom of God last week and Jesus compared the kingdom to those two things. When the bamboo curtain descended on China, there were some very keen and informed observers who believed that there were about 750,000 professing believers in China. Still other observers believed that when that curtain fell, that it would be the end of the church. It spelled the, the death knell of the church when the tyranny of communism came in and began to systematically snuff out pastors and churches and seminaries and colleges. But when there was a a crack appeared in the curtain of China, a watching Christian world was stunned to realize that there were upwards of 35 million believers in China. The gospel had spread like leaven across the nation. The gospel grew like a mustard seed planted in the soil and the gospel was alive and well in China because all the tyranny of communism could not thwart the advance of the kingdom of God. Today, China is the second, has the second largest professing evangelical body in the world. Number one is America. China, second only to America. When the Iron Curtain fell and Stalin and Lenin and the hammer of communism advanced into Russia, other uh, observers believed that the message of the gospel, the voice of the gospel, would be silenced. But the hand that rocked the cradle, the babuska, the grandmother, would share the gospel in word and um, hum and sing anthems of the Christian faith and of the gospel. And again, as a curtain opened into Russia, there was a surprising discovery. The gospel was alive and well in Russia. In fact, one of the largest underground Church systems in the world is found in the prison system in Russia where men and women incarcerated for various real crimes and imagined crimes would share the gospel one with another and the Word of God had run rapidly and lives are being chained, or changed rather, even as they were being chained in extraordinary circumstances. If Dr. Young were here, he would probably say something like this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Indeed, it does stand forever, and the kingdom of God like a seed grows, and the kingdom of God like leaven in a barrel of meal transforms wherever its influence is felt. Charles Colson, Richard Nixon's former hatchet man, came to Saving Faith in Christ and eventually founded Prison Fellowship, and now it's an international ministry, so it's Prison Fellowship International. They planted a ministry in a prison, Humatra prison in Brazil. Uh, Today, that prison is run by inmates. There are only two staff members. Uh, The rest of the prison is run by the inmates who are decidedly Christian, who hold prayer meetings and Bible studies, and who actively evangelize and share their faith. There is virtually no in-house crime, virtually no in-house smuggling or other things that are so... Uh, rampant in, um, in many prison systems, including those in America. And the recidivism rate is only 4%. Because the leaven of the gospel is changing men inside the prison from the inside out as they're coming under the sway of King Jesus. And their hearts are being made new and they're becoming new men. Our Lord has given many images concerning the kingdom of God and the advance of the kingdom. And there are many current and historical illustrations that would support the claims of our Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, beginning in about verse 15 and reading down through uh, verse 24, there's another great image of the kingdom. And this looks forward, I believe, to a kingdom consummation or the consummation of the kingdom when the king returns. And we'll begin in Luke chapter 14. And start in verse 15 and read through verse 24. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Christ said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another in verse 19 said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another in verse 20 said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper food and fellowship they just go together don't they food and fellowship great images of the kingdom of god great images of salvation you'll find them all over the bible where god's goodness god's bounty and god's grace and his uh, overflowing love for his people is pictured in terms of both food and fellowship Uh, when adam and eve were created they were placed in a garden of eden And Genesis chapter 2 says that God says you can eat freely of everything in the garden except one thing. I won't get into that, but the point I want to make is that God had placed them into a plush environment, a garden that He Himself had planted, and He encouraged them. He commanded them, in a sense, to eat freely. Eat as much as you want of everything in this garden. When God promised liberation to his Old Testament people, and they were going to be liberated from bondage in Egypt, harsh servitude. God said, I'm going to lead you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And you may remember, they sent out the twelve spies, and they came back with huge clusters of grapes, and they said, indeed, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. When Christ came and was performing incredible miracles, He took five loaves about the size of your fist, the average man's fist, barley loaves and two small fish and he multiplied them and he fed over 5,000 men. Some commentators believe the number could have been in excess of 10,000 people because women were not counted in that number nor were children. In excess of 10,000 people fed from five loaves and two fish And if that wasn't enough, they took up 12 large baskets full of the fragments that were left over. The point is, God gave more than enough. Throughout the Bible, you'll find these images of food picturing God's grace and God's goodness. Even the psalmist David in Psalm 23 says that he anoints my head with oil and my cup does what? Runs over just runs over whenever um well i came here seven or eight weeks ahead of uh melinda and i stayed with my mom and uh she's the typical southern mom uh she would just feed me till i'd burst if i'd let her i'd say mom i've had enough oh you want a little more and she'd keep scooping it on there that's the image of the scripture god giving more than enough more than what is sufficient because he's a great and gracious god and Christ takes this image of this great banquet to represent for us the coming consummation of the kingdom of God. Notice very quickly the immediate context. In chapter 14 and verse 1, the immediate context is a meal. They're having food. It's Sunday dinner, if you will, except it would have been a Saturday. Their Sabbath, but Jesus is eating in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees a prominent and important person. And they're breaking bread together. Um, You know, Jesus in Matthew 11 uh, was addressing His critics and He said, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking and you said he's an austere man. And I came eating and drinking and you say I'm um, a consumer of wine and a glutton and have a demon. But here is Christ, our Lord, in God incarnate in the days of His flesh on a Sabbath afternoon, and he's breaking bread in the house of this unnamed Pharisee in Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. And Jesus rebukes those who are present because of their hardness of heart. And at the end of the rebuke, one of those in verse 15 who sat at the table with him said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now listen, that's either a commendable expression Expressing longing and yearning for the coming fullness of the kingdom of God? Or it's yet another glib, superficial comment from an overinflated, self-righteous Pharisee? It doesn't matter which view you take. I personally think it's the latter because he was a ruler of the Pharisees. It doesn't matter which view you take. Because the important issue is this. Have you And have I responded to the invitation of the king to come to his banquet? And does our life indicate that we're on the way to the banquet? That's the major issue. But I want to make very quickly, and I say that with tongue in cheek, I want to make very quickly four observations from the text, if I may. Now you can start your watches. First observation. Notice with me very quickly the image of the great banquet. Life in the kingdom of God is pictured here as a feast. It's pictured as a bounty for those who are invited by grace alone. It's pictured as a celebration, as a time of feasting and joy and fellowship. The Scripture says that if we have Christ, folks, we have all things. We have all things necessary for life in godliness. And the Bible Pictures this feast that we have in Christ in many different ways. For example, when Paul, writing as an uncondemned prisoner of the Roman Empire from a jail cell in Imperial Rome, addresses his letter to the church at Ephesus, this is how he starts the letter. He starts with a burst of praise to God. Depends on your translation, but the one I use, New King James Version. He says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be, or blessed be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Here is a man enchained and incarcerated, awaiting an uncertain fate at the hands of a maniacal emperor by the name of Nero. And his heart is bursting with praise to God because of all that is his in Christ. And then Paul begins to name all those blessings that are his in Christ. He says, praise God for his electing love in Christ. Praise God that he has redeemed us by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, you and I have been redeemed not by silver and gold, but by something infinitely more valuable, the precious blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that were not enough, Paul says we've been adopted into the Father's family. God has brought you by His grace and for His glory into His family. He has set His eye upon you as a well-beloved son or daughter. And you and I are never beyond the reach of His hand. We're never beyond the omniscient gaze of His goodness and His grace to us. And as an all-wise, all-good, all-powerful Father. He chastens us, Hebrews 12. He corrects us that we might increasingly bear the image of the elder brother, the firstborn among many brethren, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been elected. We've been redeemed. We have been adopted into the Father's family. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit by which He's made us new creations in Christ. And the Spirit of God dwells in us and He abides with us forever. He, he gifts us for ministry to advance the king, the King's kingdom. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. He illuminates the Word of God to our understanding. Paul is bursting with praise because of all the feast that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look behind you, you see God's redeeming mercies. If you look at your present, uh, even your circumstances tonight, you see the grace of God, the sustaining power of God. And if you and I pause to look ahead at what the Bible has in store for those who love Him and who have savingly received Him and are resting upon Him for salvation, the Bible says that it is a joy that is unspeakable and it is full of glory. The Apostle Paul, quoting some Old Testament text in 1 Corinthians 2, says that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Uh, Several of the grace groups are going to look at Randy Alcorn's book, In Light of Eternity. I think Randy Turner and Gail are being inclined in that direction. Uh, Jeff Simons. I don't know if Jeff's in here tonight, but Jeff and Laverna Simons, their grace group is going to take a look at Randy Alcorn's book, In Light of Eternity. Vince and Sally Alfonso did it last year. Anybody else read the the book? Um, um, What great images the Bible gives us. But I believe the reality far exceeds and excels the images. All that awaits us in this great image of a feast and a banquet is a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. David in Psalm 16 said that he had set the Lord before him always and that at God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore and in his presence there is fullness of joy. What a feast, what a banquet is the kingdom of God to our weary souls, what a what a feast our Lord is to us. I love the image and we're going to um, observe communion I believe again on August the 14th. but I love this image in John 6 where Jesus says, "I am the bread of life. we may feed upon him, beloved of God, we may feed upon him and find strength and rest and comfort for our weary souls. JC. Ryle. An Anglican from the 19th century said the gospel contains a full supply of everything that sinners need in order to be saved. Forgiveness of all sin, peace with God, justification of the person and sanctification of the heart. Grace by the way and glory in the end. Christ in one word is the sum and substance of the great supper. Number one, the image of the banquet is an image of the consummation of the kingdom of God and a coming day of joy and fullness and glory in God's presence. Second observation, real quickly, is the invitation to the banquet. We enter this banquet, we come to the banquet by invitation only. There are no party crashers who will be in heaven. We come to the banquet because the gracious God has extended the invitation to come to the banquet. In antiquity, two invitations were sent. An initial invitation was sent that merely announced that Jonathan and Layla are going to be having a banquet. And to that initial invitation, how should we dress? (laughs) Casual, great. Um, At that initial invitation from Jonathan and Layla, uh, there would be an expected RSVP. But then they would work on preparing for the banquet. They would kill the fatted cat. They would crush the best grapes. They would spread a feast. And then they would send a family member or a messenger to say, Come, the banquet is now ready. In this scene, the invitation has gone out. And there has been an RSVP. But notice the second invitation comes now. Come, all things are now prepared All things are now ready. That's the image, that's the picture in verse 17. Come for all things are now ready. But notice in verse 18, they all begin to make excuses. They all begin to make excuses. You know, life apart from God is no feast. It is no feast. This life, at its best, is still under a just curse of God and is a veil of tears. Filled with disappointment, heartache, suffering, setback, brokenness. But life apart from God contains no promise, either in this life or in the life to come. No promise, no hope. That's how Paul described the unbelieving, the unconverted in Ephesians 2, without God and without hope in this world. The only way to enter the feast of God's kingdom is by divine invitation. I had a man tell me, not at Gracie Van, this is another church. But I had a man tell me one time when Melinda and I lived in uh, Tennessee. We uh, moved from Tennessee in um, November 1987. But a man told me in the lobby of a church once, um, an evangelical church, he said, Jeff, there are many roads to Nashville. And I believe there are many ways to heaven. That flies in the face of what the Scripture says, doesn't it? Jesus in John 10 says, I am the door to the sheep. All who enter by some other way are thieves and robbers. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, implying He's one among many. Not a truth, implying He's one truth among many. And not a life, implying there are other lives beside His. Very emphatic, very specific. In John fourteen six, he says, And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. We come because God has extended the invitation. The effects of our depravity inherited from our fallen progenitors Adam and Eve are too great that apart from God's invitation we would ever come to Him. The myriad problems of our fallenness are too great for self-improvement or self-salvation strategies, for all of our alleged sophistication and technological advancement, the problems of the heart remain the same in every generation and they're only remedied by the message of the gospel. Christ in Him crucified and risen and reigning is the only answer for the dilemma of the human heart. Life apart from God contains no feast. If we were left to the optimism of humanism, we would eventually be led ever deeper into the dark arms of despair. One skeptic penned these words, The whole conviction of my life rests upon the belief that the sense of loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon peculiar to myself and to a few other solitary people, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. All this hideous doubt... Despair and dark confusion of the soul a lonely person must know for he is united to no image save that which he himself creates. But this text and others say there is an invitation to something greater than the darkness of despair that this life would offer us. There is an invitation to something greater than the fool's goal of a fallen world and the fallen promises that emanate From a fallen world. There is an invitation to a banquet of cosmic proportion. And I don't pretend to know all that that entails. But were we to turn over to Revelation chapter 21, the opening five verses tell us there is a coming day in which there is no separation, there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no death. There is a coming place whose builder and maker is God. There is a place whose glory is nothing other than the illumination of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that invitation, we must respond, or we're left without any encouragement or hope. The invitation is repeated in various ways in Scripture. The Old Testament, the Lord speaks through Isaiah and says, Everyone who thirsts, let him come to the waters. He later says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near." And one of my favorite um, New Testament uh, references to Jesus is where He's standing before a multitude. And He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. John 7, He stands and says, If anybody thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And as the Scripture has said... Out of His inmost being will flow rivers of living water. The invitation comes in every generation in repeated ways. Come to the banquet. Come to the feast. Come celebrate the joy and the goodness of the King. He says to those who are guilty, come and find pardon. He says to those who are broken and battered and beaten, come and find wholeness and healing. And remarkably, our Lord says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The image of a great banquet, an invitation to come to the banquet, is met, and this is the third observation, by indifference. I read just a moment ago that all began to make excuses. Pretty typical of the reception of the gospel and the responses that are given to the gospel, Christ invites, but they will not come. And why is that? Well, the text suggests in brief three, um, three reasons, three excuses are given. Verse 18, first, there are those who whose possessions are in the way of accepting God's grace and God's invitation. In verse 18, the man would come, but he had bought a field. An opportunity stood in the way. The man would come, but business prohibited him. His responding to the invitation. I think that um, scenario is repeated in 1 Timothy 6. Where Paul encourages Timothy to warn those who would pursue the riches of this world. He would admonish them to be careful. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of what? Evil. All kinds of evil. And he says the pursuit of which have plunged men into destruction, into many sorrows, and into despair. The neglect of the gospel's invitation. The first reason given here, the first excuse is just because of business. The second response given in verse 19, his career and responsibility stand in the way. The ambitions of this world and the neglect of the next stand in the way of accepting the invitation of God's banquet. The man says, I just bought five oxen and I need to go out and test them. I would come, but I just made an important purchase and I need to go out and try it out. One commentator, Marcus Dodd, said, Of how many men in their pursuits does this man stand as representative? Men so engrossed in the business or pursuits of this world that they positively do not know that God has any claims upon their time. Too busy, too much business, too ambitious to be concerned about the next world. Too preoccupied with this life to be concerned about the life to come. Would you just quickly turn back with me to uh, Luke chapter 9, very quickly. Luke chapter 9. As I was studying and uh, looking over this passage, I, I remembered an earlier invitation that Jesus had extended in Luke chapter 9, in verse 23, in which He again, He's addressing a multitude in Luke 9, 23. He said to them all, Luke 9, 23, He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I'm going to tell you quickly more than you want to know. Um, Several words in the original text for life. This one is bios. B-I-O-S from which we get the word biology. It's natural life. Life on an earthly level. It's, talking about material existence. And what Jesus is saying, you want to preserve this life? You want to preserve this life as you know it? It will ultimately cost you your life. But if you're willing to lose all of this, if you're willing to forsake all of this, then you will find life and life more abundantly. You will find life indeed. He says to the would-be disciple You must deny all self-reliance on self for salvation. You must take up the cross. The underlying figure is of a condemned convict, a condemned criminal being compelled to take up his own instrument of execution and march through the streets. What the condemned criminal is compelled to do under much duress, the disciple is enabled to do willingly by the power of the Holy Spirit because he's found a greater treasure than the things of this life, because a greater love has captured his heart. In the early teens, uh, the turn of the 19th century, Edward VII was about ready to aspire to the throne, and he fell in love with an American divorcee by the name of Wallace Warfield Simpson. And he could not marry this American divorcee. The Anglican church would not permit it. And without their blessing, he could not ascend to the throne. And so Edward said, I abdicate. I abdicate the throne. Because my heart is captured by something else. I think in many ways what this text in Luke 9 is saying. Jesus is saying something greater than this life. Someone greater, someone more magnificent than all that this world could offer captures the heart of a disciple and he will deny it all. He will forsake it all to lay hold on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Luke 9, the disciple must begin to follow and keep on following. That implies, I think, trust, obedience, seeking and walking. It's the, explanation, the explanation is given in verses 24, 25, 26, Luke nine twenty five. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? See, at the end of the day, all these excuses, underneath all these excuses, turn back to Luke 14 quickly. At the end of the day, under all these excuses, is an apathy, an antipathy, if you will, a spiritual indifference, a spiritual inertia inertia—that um, that is deathly, it's deadly, it's fatal. And so the invitation comes, but there's indifference to the invitation. And it comes in various colors, in various ways, to varying degrees. And that's why I think, and we talked about this a little bit in, in our staff meeting this afternoon, that scripture does not call us to a hasty, emotional, superficial commitment. It calls us to count the cost before you decide to follow Christ. Luke fourteen twenty-eight: For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Verse 31. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation. Verse thirty three, so likewise, whoever you does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. You hardly ever hear that in evangelicalism today. You hardly ever hear that in an easy believism. But the scripture admonishes and urges to count the cost. The bottom line in all of these, beneath the thin veneer of their excuses was a belief that they had a better life, a better opportunity elsewhere. And unless repentance is granted by the grace of the King, it will prove to be a damnable response to the invitation. Fourth and final observation, very quickly, and I close. How many of you believe that? Say amen. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, Jeff, you remind me of 7-Eleven. I said, how is that? He said, you never close. You never close. Well, I'm closing Final observation. Verse 21. Look at the initiation of the king. I just point out two things. Number one, the abounding grace of God to sinners. In verse 21, the servant comes back and reports and the response of the master of the house is, Go quickly into the streets and lanes and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame and the blind. God's saving purpose is not thwarted by the unwillingness of men to accept the invitation. God will populate the banquet. God will populate the table. And He will do it by His almighty will and by His grace. He will subdue these indifferent, carnal, hardened, dead hearts. And He will have people to populate the banquet and to surround the grace of the table. It shows the greatness of God's grace that in the face of such refusal, He would persist. And He would bring them in, compellingly so, because He's renewed their wills and given them a new heart. All the enemy of recalcitrant sinners is no match for the almighty, invincible grace of God that brings people to the table. In verse 23, He says, Go into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in. What an incentive for the ministry of the gospel. We pray, we persist, we proclaim, because our King, in Matthew 28, said, Go. And we go because the one who said it has all authority in heaven and in earth. Notice not only the grace of the king but the glory of the king who ends up being around the table. is not the high and the mighty. It's not the sophisticated, the hoi ploy of the day. It's uh, people in verse 21 who are described as being poor and maimed and lame and blind. It's those who are in the highways and hedges in verse 23. It might seem to us that the king would be dishonored to have such at his banqueting table. No Pharisee would have ever thrown a feast and invited poor people. They never would have invited the lame, the blind, the crippled, the beggar. No self-respecting religious zealot would ever have been seen in the presence of those kind of people. But the king is glorified to bring such as us, such as we who are blind, who are poor, who are wretched, who are naked, who are crippled and lame in our souls to bring us into the feast of which there is no end. The Apostle Paul, in writing a proud Corinthian church, said, look among you, there's not many mighty, not many noble among you. And God has done this, that no flesh would glory in His presence. That He who glories... In the Lord with glory in Him and in Him alone. There is a coming day of consummation and you and I, by God's grace and goodness alone, are going to be seated around that table feasting on the manifold goodness of God. Even so, come quickly, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You that in clear and uh, easily discerned images, you give us wonderful word pictures of the grace of your kingdom and of the fullness of your kingdom. And uh, no matter our circumstances this evening or the things with which we wrestle, may our hearts be warmed and encouraged by the truth and the power of the gospel. and The fact that apart from your... Uh, efficacious grace apart from the power of your spirit working in us we would be outcasts but you have called us and we are the humble recipients of a grace that's greater than all of our sin may your name be praised forevermore for this we ask in christ's name amen